Well, I'm not sure how many in this room are really into trivia, trivia games and such. In my household, my dad is honestly the best when it comes to trivia stuff. If there seems to be a random episode of Jeopardy on, he seems to always know the answer, sorry, the question to what's being prompted on screen. But this morning, I have a trivia question for all the adults in the room. Perhaps maybe you may know. But this is a church history, church architecture question. And I want to ask, why, why is it this, where you all are sitting, where the usual congregation sits in a church, is called the nave? Traditionally, technically speaking, where you all are sitting right now has been called for centuries in churches, even modern churches, it's called the nave. Now, I want you to think about it for a second. Maybe you know the answer. Turn to the person next to you and ask, tell them that maybe the answer, maybe, maybe even guess or speculate. Those that are online, feel free to type in the comments maybe your question or your, your answer to this question. My only rule is that you're not allowed to Google it. Don't pull out your phone and try to Google the answer. That counts for you all at home. But I'm going to give you about 30 seconds. You know, maybe take a wild guess. Take 30 seconds and think about it. Good luck. I will give you a hint. The word nave sounds kind of like the word navy. It's a hint. Well, maybe you had your best guess. I uh, don't know if you're into trivia or not, but as I was saying, the nave in traditional churches for centuries where the people sit, where they congregate, is called the nave. In both Roman and Catholic and both Protestant churches, it's called the nave, and that's where a sanctuary is. It's commonly, we refer to it as sanctuary, but technically that's not what it's called. It's where the pews and the chairs are at, but the word nave comes from the Latin word for ship. So why on earth would Christians, centuries ago, nickname the place where they all sit to come to church the ship? Isn't that kind of curious? There's nothing about this space that makes you think of seafaring at all. There's no mast, there's no sails, there's no oars. Nothing about this room, maybe except for all the wood, screams boat. But our Christian forefathers and foresisters, they nicknamed it and kept this idea of nave around. The earliest Christians believed that they had experienced firsthand God's salvation from from the storms of this life, and they envisioned themselves in a boat, like the story we see today. They envisioned themselves in a boat on the sea, and when the storms of life came, they believed that God came and rescued them. And so they continually viewed the place where they congregated as the ship to remember and celebrate how God had helped them like a lifeboat rescuing people that are drowning. Isn't that kind of cool? And so we see in this story the beginning of that thought, that Christians for centuries have viewed stories like this in the gospel accounts of Jesus rescuing his disciples on the sea as us. The church is the boat. 
And this morning I want to examine how the church is still like a ship today, battling the storms. Not necessarily natural storms like we see, but rather the storms that arise in our world because chaos exists. We will explore a likely familiar episode from the Gospel of Matthew of the disciples needing to be rescued after a fierce storm beseeches them. We find that after the feeding of the 5,000 of the story that we examined last week, we get this story of the disciples being sent out. And though this story probably sounds similar to an earlier story in Matthew chapter 8, which is another seafaring story, there are curious plot differences and details here in Matthew 14 that I want to pick up on that I think still teaches us something about following Christ. And while we could have looked at the miraculous recording of it in Mark or the Gospel of John, we'll take a look at Matthew's. Because Matthew offers an additional ending, if you might say, that offers significant insight for how we're going to follow Jesus. So this entire sermon series, we've been talking about learning to follow Christ, and we began this series talking about where is Christ headed? Where is Jesus going? And last week we left off with talking about the mission that we are supposed to carry on, the responsibility of us to imitate Christ in all facets of that, whether we're going to be rejected or even in the impossible times. And this week we will find that Jesus is doing another remarkable, impossible feat of walking across the stormy sea. And again, in this likely familiar story to all of us, I think we get a glimpse of what the forecast looks like for when we follow Christ. And I think it calls for having strong faith. So my first point this morning is that we see that Jesus is aware of the forecast. We, leave all, we begin the story, we leave off from our story last week, but we begin this story with just Jesus dismissing the satisfied crowds. And then he goes atop a mountain to pray. He seeks a time of private communion with his father, even away from the masses and even away from his disciples. But Jesus sending away the disciples and praying alone is a way for the writer of the Gospel of Matthew to put some separation and a distance between the disciples and Jesus here. Notice that it explicitly reads in verse 23 that he went by himself to pray. Again, there's a clear gap that Jesus is on the top of a mountain and the disciples are in the middle of the sea. The author wants us to catch this pivotal plot detail because the disciples are alone without Jesus. And while this may be confusing to envision Jesus sending his followers ahead of him alone, But if Jesus had not forced his disciples ahead of him to embark on this journey by themselves, they might have missed an opportunity to see God revealed to them. So we find the boat is carrying the disciples. It is said to be a long way off from the land. Exactly how far from shore, it's not specified. But it's enough distance that the disciples cannot immediately or easily or safely return to shore if a crisis arose. They're in the thick of it, as it were. No turning back. And add on top of that, it's nighttime. It's late at night, and the darkness is all around them. The only lights that they have are the moon and the stars. Darkness surrounds them. And in the midst of this roaring sea is this band of 12 people that have been called by a singular individual who is now absent from them. 12 men, some of them related by family, some of them that are still strangers to one another, but their common purpose of learning and spreading the message of this teacher has compelled them to stick together through thick and thin. This camaraderie that's been forged is about to be tested with the arrival of a severe windstorm. 
Tempests are common on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is below sea level, so it's prone to severe weather like the one we read here. The lake is often sudden to sudden violent squells that small vessels like the one that is carrying the disciples might find themselves seemingly in mortal peril. And despite having in their company some experienced fishermen, the disciples still struggle with this severe storm. Different translations have different renderings of the adjectives you have in your Bibles. It says maybe beaten or buffeted or battered. But the meaning behind this verbiage is to understand that the disciples are being tortured by the storm. All the forces of nature are seemingly against them. Rain pounds upon them, soaking them to the bone. The wind howls around them, stirring up confusion. The waves toss and turn this boat ceaselessly. It's pitch dark, so visibility is extremely limited. And the situation is dire. The disciples are likely paranoid. As a group, these men are without the one who previously calmed the storm earlier in Matthew. They're seemingly alone. This imagery of this scene may be described in only a few short verses, but it's rich in symbolism that could go amiss by modern readers like ourselves. The ancient Hebrews viewed anything pertaining to water, sea travel, rainstorms, as representations of chaos. Chaos simply just exists. It means the uncertainty or the disorder or the randomness that exists in our world. And while we may have varying definitions of chaos today, for the ancient Hebrews, through the lens of their culture and tradition, chaos was more of a neutral entity. Chaos just is. It existed with the potential of causing problems and hardships for humans. And so for the sake of our story this morning, the sea itself and the minds of the biblical authors connotates the forces of chaos. To the biblical mind, being at sea is itself a threat, and it represents all the anxieties and the dark powers of our world that threatens the goodness of the created order. So to be at sea, it evokes images of death and the active power that threatens the goodness of our life. So in the mind of the original Jewish recipients of this gospel, and in the minds of the author Matthew, he views this story as a representation of water and chaos as being related The sea voyage and the stormy elements all represent the forces of chaos that exist in our world. This makes this journey by the disciples across the lake even far more foreboding and experience than we may initially read this story. The sea itself becomes a barrier that separates the disciples from Jesus. Jesus who represents the presence of God and in the midst of the chaos of our world, they are left alone in the boat and the only fragile craft protecting them from this threat. And it seems like all hope is lost. But the text reads in verse 25 that at the fourth watch of the night, or between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., a figure emerges on the horizon. At the latest and darkest part of the night, Jesus comes to them. Amidst the turbulence of the chaos, salvation comes to them in their most desperate hour to rescue them. We read that Emmanuel, God with us lives up to his namesake as he proceeds towards this hurricane-like scene unfolding before them, walking upon the sea. Now, I want you to not get stuck trying to scientifically rectify Jesus walking on water here. Because what Jesus is doing in this moment has far more implications than just simply defying the laws of gravity. But to understand the significance of Jesus on walking, we have to, walking on water, we have, to, we have to backtrack again to the Old Testament. During the time of the writing of the Old Testament, in the pagan religions, they had this understanding that chaos was also like related to water. So they, they had the same understanding, 
But in these pagan cult religions, they would view the sea as some sort of sea monster or a chaos monster with the only the gods being capable of conquering it. And they told fables of the gods trampling upon or walking upon the sea, which communicated that the gods had conquered the forces of chaos. So the writers of the Old Testament, they actually tap into this imagery, but they understand it through their theological lens. As they're living in Babylon and foreign lands, the original writers of the Old Testament speak of the true God, Yahweh, trampling over the powers of chaos by borrowing from the imagery and the language of their surrounding culture. If you don't believe me, I, I have some proofs and I have the scriptures that will hopefully be put on screen. But in Job chapter 9, verse 8, Job speaks of God as the one who, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled upon the waves of the sea. God later responds to Job in, verse, in chapter 38, verse 16. He asks this rhetorical question of Job. He says, have you entered the, sea, the, the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Psalm 77, verse 19, the psalmist cries out, your ways through the sea, your path through the great waters. God will later speak through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43, verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path on the mighty waters. The final reference I'll give to you this morning is Isaiah 51, verse 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass through? Pick up on the, what the Old Testament writers, they recognize that since God is the creator of all things, God is supreme over chaos. Can I get an amen for that? God is supreme over chaos because chaos does not run rampant and unchecked. God is more powerful than chaos. God keeps its forces and powers at bay. And so we read stories in the Old Testament of like a creation where God separates the land from the waters. Or God parts the Red Sea or the Jordan River for the people of Israel to walk through it. These stories serve as a purpose of reinforcing for the Israelites God's power over the forces of darkness and chaos. So when we fast forward back to Jesus approaching the disciples by walking upon the surface of the water, while the modern mind thinks of defying gravity, the biblical mind thinks of the one who overcomes the powers of chaos. And he's just arrived on the scene. Just as Yahweh in the past walked upon the sea demonstrating his powers over the forces of chaos, the gospel writer records that Jesus is now doing the same exact thing as an indication that Jesus is now not just merely a man, but that he's God. Jesus is living up to his namesake Emmanuel by arriving on the scene and bringing salvation to his followers in their time of need. And it's curious to point out that the writer actually indicates now that this, this moment is when the disciples actually become afraid. They fear seeing this ghost or phantom that they think is approaching them by the seas, and this is what frightens them. But yet this ghostly figure, he calls out to them and he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The disciples hear the familiar voice of their Lord and Master approaching. They hear the voice of God. Similar to how God originally identified himself to Moses at the burning bush with, I am. Jesus simply speaks to the disciples and says, it is I. Jesus here is speaking to his followers like Jesus spoke to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, further cementing that Matthew's purpose of showcasing the divinity of this figure walking upon the water towards the disciples. 
God himself, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, has arrived to save the disciples from their peril. While he sent them ahead of him, they were never beyond his sight or care. While the disciples may have felt alone and tormented by these forces of nature, Jesus was always there ready to save them, as he always does. He never, he, the, the forecast of following Christ is never out of his knowledge. The voyage and the, voyage and the journey the disciples were on, he knew what was going to happen to them. I read this week of a story uh, that happened to the life of uh, preacher Tony Campolo. He tells of growing up as a boy in a congested and bustling city where it was somewhat dangerous for him to walk to school by himself. And so his mother arranged for a teenage girl named Harriet that lived in the community to walk with him to school. In exchange, that every day, if she would walk to and from school with Tony, she'd be paid a nickel for her services. Well, as Tony grew older, he became very conscious of the amount of money that this girl was making for walking him to school. And so in the second grade, Tony rebelled and told his mother that there was no need for her to pay Harriet any longer, that, he, that she should give him the nickel each day instead, and that he should walk himself to school. And he assured her that he could do it, and there was going to be no problems at all. And after a period of pleading and begging, his mother finally gave in and said, okay, if you'll be very careful, I'll give you a nickel a day, and you can put the money in the bank and save it for Christmas to buy your sister some presents. And that was sufficient to, uh, to please the young Tony. And so for two years, he walked himself back and forth to school. It was an eight-mile block, walked from the, with the streets to cross. And, but he was careful. He didn't talk to strangers or he didn't distract himself along the way. But years pass after his mother has passed away. And Tony tells that he was at a family gathering with his sisters. And he was reminding his sisters that he had this independent spirit about him even when he was young as a child. And he reminded them of how he walked himself to school and how he needed no one's help in getting there and back each day and how that translated to good presents for them for Christmas. But he recounts that his sisters begin to laugh at him and then one of them said, do you think that you went to school alone and came alone, home alone each day? Every day when you left, mom followed you. And when you came out of the school at the end of the day, she was there. She always made sure you didn't notice her but she watched over you coming and going just to make sure you were safe and that no one hurt you. Didn't it ever occur to you that when there was something strange about the fact that when you knocked on the door, she didn't answer right away? It always took a minute or so before she opened the door of the house to let you in? That's because she would follow you and then sneak in through the back door. And when she opened the front door and let you in, it was always you left you with the impression that you had been by yourself the whole time, but in reality, she had been watching over you all this time. Sometimes it feels like as we're going along as Christ followers that we're alone. At times it seems like we're battling the storms of this life on our own or even as a collective group here in this room. We may find ourselves surrounded by seemingly endless darkness much like it feels like this past year and even into this new year. And when the winds and the waves of life whip up and cause us pain, Sometimes it feels like we are alone at sea and that God is somewhere on the shore. We feel that we are by ourselves and barred from his presence. And as I said in the beginning, Christians for centuries have understood the ship in this story to be the church. 
The church is like the vessel carrying the disciples, tossed and turned senselessly. Yet the miracle and the good news of this story is that all of those who are endangered in the ship can find rescue in a Savior who comes to them upon the backs of the waters. Christ will always rescue his church. Church, we follow and serve a God who tramples upon the forces of chaos. The powers of darkness have no choice but to bend their will to his. He has dominion and authority over the chaos of this world. Jesus is capable of stilling the storms in our lives. And he comes to you and I with the same message he had for his disciples. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus doesn't leave us when the storms of life arise. When the waters rage and the winds roar, when it seems like all hope is lost, Jesus appears to save us. He comes to us as the champion over the powers of chaos to all of those who call on him in faith. So the question I have for you right now is, do you trust him and have faith that he is with you during the storms of your life? Can you take Jesus at his word that you do not need to be afraid of the storms because Jesus is with you in the midst of the chaos? And he tells you not to be afraid. In the midst of this pandemic, on the brink of a new White House administration, on, you know, economic hardship, nasty weather outside, fill in the blank, we can have faith to believe that God is present with us and with you if you let him. He's arrived on the scene and wants to be let in the boat. Will you let him? My second point is that forecast, this forecast calls for faith. While Jesus is always coming to rescue the church, there is still something we have to do as his followers. We have to keep our focus on him and not the winds and the waves around us. Unlike Mark and John, the Gospel of Matthew includes an additional portion of this story that's unique to his gospel. This additional ending, if you will, is around the Apostle Peter and his request to join Jesus atop the waters propels this already phenomenal story to notoriety among the plethora of other miracle stories in the Gospels because not only does Jesus walk on the water, that we see the Apostle Peter does too. This is probably the part of the story that we're all familiar with and I, I hope that you will listen with a fresh to what God will speak to us this morning through it. Because amidst the disarray of the situation, Peter is willing to chance that the figure coming towards them might be the fellow that they left on the shore moments ago. So Peter yells out to Jesus, he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come on the water. If it's really, really you, can you get me out of this boat? Make me come to you on the water too. Catch the two proponents of Peter's statement here. On one hand, he rightfully identifies Jesus as Lord a precursor to Peter's confession two chapters later in chapter 16 of you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Lord and ruler of the cosmos, so he seems to be on the right foot. But yet on the other hand, Peter appears to need some further confirmation that this truly is Jesus. He doesn't say since it is you, rather he says if it is you. Peter seems to be wanting further proof that the figure coming towards the boat is indeed the person they have been following this entire time. So Peter seems to put Jesus to the test. But I think that Peter thinks that this figure is Jesus. I think he's 99% sure, but a small sliver of uncertainty remains nonetheless. The last 1% Peter seems to need is to be able to join this figure physically atop the waves outside the boat. 
And so Jesus says, come. Unlike the earlier challenges by the devil in chapter 4 and even the later challenges by the high priests and the mockers at the end of Matthew, all of those people and figures want to have Jesus prove that he's divine. Jesus actually grants Peter's request here. And Peter is allowed to take a few steps. And he takes some more steps. Then Peter takes a look at the wind and the waves and then he begins to fall. He takes a glance from staring at the one who called him out of the boat and looks at his surroundings. This momentary change in vision allows enough doubt for Peter to start to become afraid and to sink. The real meaning behind this word is actually to drown. Peter's beginning to spit water. He's going under. It's in this moment that even a little bit of doubt causes Peter to sink. Doubt is kind of like the predators of oysters, which are snails. Particular snails known as oyster drills get their namesake for how they eat oysters. Oysters and snails are both mollusks, but oysters, they can't move, and they can't swim away when there's threatening conditions around them. But they hope that their hard shell will protect them from predators that are around them, so they clam up to protect themselves. But snails, particular snails... They have an appendage, literally a tongue, that is a way to drill in through that shell. This tongue is specifically designed with sharp teeth and combination of enzymes and chemicals. A snail is able to drill into an oyster, making about a one millimeter hole. Then they, they, they take this appendage, and it's not really fast, but they make this hole and they drill in, and they're able to eat the inside of an oyster. If the drill is successful, the end product is an empty oyster shell with a small little hole. Isn't that amazing? A little doubt can do that to a person. It does not take much for uncertainty and doubt to suck the heart and life of a person who is not meeting Christ's gaze. The darkness and chaos of this world around them slowly erodes at them and they begin to surely sink I'm not trying to say that the Christian faith is completely devoid of doubt. In fact, far from it. We see here the Apostle Peter gets graphically caught up between, in the midway point between faith and doubt. Peter represents all who dare to believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and take their first steps in confidence that he's able to sustain them and then forget to keep their gaze fixed on him, instead on the towering waves that threaten to engulf them. The entire Christian existence is indeed one of faith mixed with doubt. But we hope and pray and work towards that only God's grace, by its grace, that we can subdue the doubt that we have. The question becomes then is if if doubt is an ever-present potential for the Christian, then how do we go from having little faith to big faith? How do we balance trusting God at his word when he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In the world we live in presently, this seems like a tall order. But I have a few suggestions this morning. One is never lose sight of Christ's gaze. We learn from this story that what Peter was paying attention to was ultimately his downfall. Instead of looking at Christ, he was looking at the storm around him. And what a great word for us today, church. While Peter was taking a few steps on little faith, to have strong faith means that we fixate on Christ's gaze. Instead of looking at the storm for salvation or for remedies, we really need to be looking at Jesus. 
Peter's faltering in faith teaches us that in those moments when the storms of life come up, we just simply need to refocus. One of my favorite hymns of, the, of all time, and perhaps you've heard of it, is called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I'll just read you a sample of the lyrics this morning. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim at the light of his glory and grace. My last suggestion for you all, church, is that you take God at his word. Strong faith is also one that entails not only keeping sight of Christ, but also trusting in what he says. Jesus tells the entire company in the boat, do not be afraid, because Jesus was coming to save the boat. What if the message of this text is actually staying in the boat, believing what Christ said, that he was truly coming to be with them and to save them? Perhaps that is what strong faith is, not necessarily being able to walk on water because we see that only God can do that, but daring to believe that in the face of all the real evidences of hardship and pain, that God is with us in the boat, made real in the community of faith as it makes its way through the storm, battered by the waves. Repeatedly in the pages of Scripture, God tells us that we do not need to be afraid. We just have to take courage because we are children of God. So the question is, do you have faith to believe when God tells you that he's with you and you do not mean to be afraid? But the good news of this text is that for those in this room that say, Pastor, I'm, I'm floundering, I'm drowning, I'm doubting, that Jesus Christ is there and he will always pick you up. Jesus immediately, if you notice, when Peter begins to drown, he reaches out and rescues him. So for all of this in this room, we do have a Savior that is mighty to save. So for all of us, remember that we need to be strong and exercising our faith that we do not doubt. Keep your f eyes fixed on Christ and believe him at his word.